All right, if you take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the portion of our text this morning where Paul deals with his fellow servant, Timothy. Philippians 2, verse 19 through 24, Scripture says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, if I was getting, giving you a running um, kind of background into this text so that we land well on this discussion of Timothy, Paul has called us, really, I think a thematic verse in, in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, walk worthy of the gospel. For the next 20 or so verses after that, he's, he's kind of pulling apart the strands of that thought of what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. And he gives this example of Christ. And it's, it's one of the more famous passives, passages of Scripture where Christ, who in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He lowers himself, becomes obedient to the point of death, therefore God highly exalts him. And then Paul ends with his admonition in that section that God empowers us and gives us both the willingness and the ability to, to please God. So, so now all of a sudden we have this example of Timothy, and I don't think his, his point is not that he loses sight of where he's going. It's that Timothy is, is showing us a very normal guy's Christian walk in some ways. And I don't mean to minimize Timothy by saying normal, because he's about to talk about Timothy, then he'll talk about Epaphroditus, and then he's going to give his own example. And so he has kind of these three kind of biographical sketches in which he shows us people who are walking worthy of the gospel. I think he does this for a few reasons. I think we have a tendency to grade ourselves on the curve. Every once in a while I talk to my children about how they do in their Every once in a while, I talk to them all the time about how they do in school. Like, how's it going? What are you doing? What are you learning? Did you have any tests this week? I always, I always find it interesting when they say, I did really bad on a test, but I think it'll be okay. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to understand that as a dad. And usually the conversation will go something like this. Well, I didn't do very well, but it's okay, dad, because no one did good. Like, how does that work? It's like, well, everyone got like, really bad. The best score in class was like a 71, so the teacher is going to just give us all 19 extra points on the curve. So how did you do? Well, I got a 67. I'm like, 67? That's horrible. Yeah, but dad, it won't actually be that bad. I'll get like an 86. Okay. That's, I guess that's how it works. In Christianity, we do the same thing at times. We'll look around at our church, we'll look around at people around us, and we'll, we'll greet ourselves on the curve. We'll be like, well, super godly people might be a little bit better than me, but I'm doing all right. You know, I'm probably like an A-minus Christian. But perhaps if we didn't curve our grading scale, 
with the people around us, but simply look at Scripture, our grade would be a little bit more objectively clear. I think that's why Paul gives us men like Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. Because we, we can have a tendency to do something like this. We read chapter 2, and there's this example of Jesus Christ. And we're like, yeah, but that's Jesus. And, and we can minimize what it means to be just, and again, I'll use the word normal. I don't mean to say normal as in average or acceptable. I mean normal in the sense that God gives us a pattern for how he expects us to live and how he wants us to live. That should be our definition of Christian living. That should be our definition of what normal is. It doesn't mean normal is a C average. Normal is simply being obedient to what God calls a Christian to be. I think that's where Timothy's example comes in is Paul is showing the Philippians what a precious servant Timothy is and how good in ministry and effective and faithful he is. And so that's why he's sending him. It's almost a resume of Timothy. Or maybe you could just say it's a normal profile of godliness. This is what you and I should be like. This is how you and I should engage the church. And maybe if I was going to use a phrase I think Paul uses initially here, this is the mindset you and I should have. Look with me in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord to send you Timothy. Verse 20, for I have no one like him. If you were to look in the NASB or other translations, you might be, you say something like this. I have no one else of kindred spirit. The point is in that Timothy is unique. The point is that Timothy and Paul share the same mindset. It is literally that, that thought of same soul. The word psyche that we have in our culture, that's that Greek word there. That, that Timothy has the same mindset, the same soul, the same spirit as the Apostle Paul does. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 27, that kind of thematic verse that says, walk worthy of the gospel, if you look in that verse with me, it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in the spirit with one psyche, with one mind, is how the ESV translates it. Come down to chapter 2, verse 2. It says, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord. That word full accord there, same psyche. And again, the idea is not psyche in the way we use it in, Amer in, in English, but that's the Greek word, psyche. Um, and, and so you get this idea of like our mind being unified together. So come back to Timothy's thought then. I have no one who shares this mindset with me except him, so I'm sending him. Because we share the same mind. Now, the Apostle Paul, having told the Philippians, be of the same mind. Have that, that, that unity, that be of full accord, the ESV says in chapter 2, verse 2. There's this call upon all Christians to have the same mindset. Again, this is where we get the idea of kind of normal Christianity. If every Christian is to have this mindset, this is what we should define as normal. But going back to, to verse 27, is kind of the, the, this driving theme of this entire section. Paul would say this, this mindset is a gospel mindset. Maybe we could just simply say it this way. 
Timothy has a gospel-centered mindset about how he engages the people of God. He has a gospel-centeredness to him. In fact, look again at the text that we're looking at this morning. Look in verse 21. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven character. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in what? The gospel. So he's talking about gospel ministry, this gospel mindset. He goes all the way back to chapter 1 with this, kind of reemphasizing the idea of gospel-centered thinking. Go to, go to Philippians 1.5. We have a partnership in the gospel. 1.7, it's right for me to feel this way about you because you're partaker, partakers with me in the grace and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. 1.16, he says again, is for the defense of the gospel. He rejoices in 1.12 because whether out of pretense or sincerity, Christ is being preached and the gospel is going forward. And then we come to verse 27 of chapter 1, walk worthy of that gospel. So when he calls upon the Philippians to acknowledge Timothy as a, as a faithful servant, the first thing he says is, we share this mindset about life. We think about life with this kind of gospel-centered approach. If I were to ask you how you engage in relationships, how you interact with others, do you encourage others? Do you seek to push others and fill your conversations with gospel content? Now, to say something like that, you might not really connect with what that would mean. So let me just outline at least a couple ways I think the gospel should be part of the fabric of how we engage and interact and speak to one another. If you think about what the gospel is in terms of storylines, it may not be um, the way you think about it at times, but I think it's a helpful way for me to think through it. The gospel, I, I think we should start with God. That is, the gospel is primarily about God. Often when people think about the gospel, they'll start with need. Like, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Not really. Well, you need to get saved. And it ignores the fact that the reason for the gospel and the need for the gospel starts with this truth. God is good and holy and right and true, and he has created all things, and therefore all things are accountable to him, particularly those people like us who are made in his image. So as we interact with one another and we think about how Timothy is praised as this person, as this mindset that Paul calls all of us to share with him, we should be considering that as we talk to others, we're calling all people to organize themselves rightly in fellowship with the one who made them. And so often as we interact with others, we recognize people live disordered lives. They do not live as though God is their God. They live as though this world is all that there is, that there is no eternal reality beyond this present life. Or perhaps they're living in such a way that they're living in rebellion to our good God. We talk about gospel-centered thinking. We're not talking about simply kind of the junior church, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Just kind of this tiny little idea of the gospel. But the gospel in its grandness starts with this, God, period. How do you relate to him? What is he like? How do you fellowship with him? Who is the only source of what is good and pleasurable in this life? 
if not God. And so we call Christians and non-Christians to come and see the goodness and taste of the goodness of God by walking in fellowship with him. We would also push upon both Christians and non-Christians to understand that the consequences of being out of fellowship with God are at the least a loss of grace. I don't mean by that saving grace if we're talking about believers, but the Bible is really clear that those who are proud, God resists, but those who are humble, God gives No, he gives more grace. I want you to hear that because I I think there's this idea that we have this kind of socialistic God who gives everyone the exact same portion of grace. No, that's not true, is it? Otherwise, God would not say, I resist the proud and give grace. God gives more grace to those who pursue him, who seek after him, who are humble. Having said that, if we recognize that not only does God resist the proud believer, but that those who do not have God at all are under God's wrath, then when we engage in conversations where we hear of Christians who are walking in lives of disobedience, neglect, or even just the soft sins of indifference, of of failure to be obedient, we recognize that they have turned off or turned away from or limited the grace of God in their lives. So when someone is going through trials, often the really challenging way to turn a conversation is to ask them, are you living obediently to the Lord in humility before him? Again, we're thinking about having this gospel mindset that Timothy has, or perhaps talking about forgiveness and guilt. Have you ever met someone who is anxiously worried about guilt in their life because of sin? You know what the answer is, right? It's Jesus Christ. It's that Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience. Consider what Hebrews says when it says something like, because of the blood of Christ, we have our consciences cleansed. Our conscience is even just the awareness of guilt. So we're interacting with one another. The way to give freedom to the unbeliever is not to call upon them to not worry but to call upon them to run to Christ and be forgiven. I would also suggest, particularly because of Philippians, challenge uh, to, to, the, to the readers that one of the ways the Philippians were probably struggling was a faithlessness. When you're going through suffering, when you're going through trials, when life hurts, faith takes God's promises, takes the plan of God, understands the work and the grace of God in the future, and rests. Faith is difficult when life is hard. But recognizing both the promises of God, their certain fulfillment, and trusting in God's character and his revealed word is the place where the Christian finds rest, not in circumstances. And this leads the, Paul, leads the, Paul, leads the apostle to, to call the Philippians in chapter 4 to think about things that are true. He gives his, himself as a testimony, I know how to be content. He doesn't know how to be content because he's wealthy. He knows how to be content because no matter what condition he finds himself in, he knows this secret of contentment. It is the peace of God that passes understanding. It is not owning more. 
It is not having a perfect spouse. It is not having a fantastic job. It is not about a white picket fence and a dog named Spot. It is about resting in the promises of God. When he holds Timothy forward as an example and says, here's why I'm sending you this treasure of ministry capacity named Timothy. He's thinking about how Timothy approaches life with the same mindset that the apostle has. And he says, I'm sending you this one who articulates gospel living. Because this is the way he thinks about life in general. This is how he approaches people. This is who he is. The normal Christian serves Jesus Christ by helping others through gospel encouragement. Through gospel encouragement. So first, Timothy is identified as someone who has this gospel-centered mindset. Second, you'll notice that Paul continues to hold Timothy as an example by indicating that he's a humble helper. Look again in the text. Second part of verse 20, he says, I have no one who is like-minded as he is, who will be genuinely, that, that he is truly concerned for your welfare. Timothy is held hold forward as an example because his first and, pri- uh, first and primary concern is not himself. But it's the church and the health of the church. And this is a striking and uncommon note in today's culture. Most of us love Christianity because it does something for us. Most of us love going to church because it's enjoyable or does something for us. Most of us enjoy our friends because they're enjoyable to us. And yet Timothy comes at the ministry and the call to serve the Philippians, and he is primarily and genuinely concerned about them. If you were to ask Timothy, hey, why are you going to the Philippians? His answer would be, To help the Philippians. Not because I love listening to the Philippians pastor. Not because, yeah, they're incredible people. Every time I go, they give me steak dinner. Not because the music is awesome. Timothy's concern with the Philippians is the Philippians. And this is is the gospel pattern. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Because he can save lost people to please his father his concerns were external to those self-centered desires of his own soul and this is the pattern that timothy follows what is his primary concern them not himself now this is such a sanctifying press on our motives i can imagine timothy not being discouraged if people didn't thank him The salary and the paycheck didn't matter. The praise of men was not what he pursued. The glory of being Paul's companion was not his goal. His goal was to care for the welfare of the Philippians. He he will define that a little more for us in the next couple phrases. But again, if we're just cataloging the resume of a normal Christian, gospel-centered mindset, being a humble helper, Number three, Christ-centered goals. The normal Christian serves Jesus Christ by helping others through gospel encouragement by having Christ-centered goals. Again, looking at the beginning of verse 21, seeking 
his own or not seeking his own interest, but what? The things of Jesus Christ. Now, he is criticizing both the, the normal approach to Christian living. What is, the normal approach to, what is the normal approach to living? I mean, strip away any trickiness. Let's imagine you're at a job interview. And the potential employer says, so why do you want this job? <laughs> like, uh, paycheck? <laughs> like, I mean, perhaps at some point here early in your career, you're like, because this will help me get a bigger paycheck in the you know, later days. But essentially, why do you want the job you're applying for? In general, the answer is because you pay me lots of money to do it. So, so we can approach life with this kind of economical question, like, is this worth it? And, and the question really is answered personally. Is it worth it to me? Or, or perhaps we broaden that out to me and my family. Right? Like we might not take a job that would uh, call us into a position that would jeopardize our children's development or risk our marriage. But we take jobs. We're, we're not necessarily thinking through the broad mission or even particularly Christ. Again, Timothy's example is not like normal approaches to life he is not seeking something to please himself. He is seeking the things of Christ. Right? That's what verse 21 says, right? That people seek their own interests, but he seeks, pursues the things of Christ. What are the things of Christ? I think it would be defined in that idea of gospel we just talked through. That is, he is seeking to promote in the Philippians an approach to life where the gospel shapes their values and their goals and their behaviors so that Christ is pleased. Now, we could just step back a little bit and, and consider the thought here. How important is Christian ministry to the Apostle Paul? How important is it to Timothy? Well, if you know Paul's biography, he died for it, but I think this phrase here reminds us something. What is Christian ministry truly about? It's about Jesus. And the real question we could ask anyone who's involved in Christian ministry is, are you doing this for the sake of Jesus? There are many pastors who love preaching because everyone gets to listen to them. There are some pastors who love preaching because they just want the paycheck. There are some missionaries who go to foreign lands just because they love foreign lands. I think there are some missionaries I've seen go through where I think they are men who really want to be pastors, but they just couldn't cut it in the States. And so we pay for them to go and impose their lack of giftedness on people who don't pay their salary because no American church would pay the salary of that guy to preach. Have you ever heard a missionary like that? I don't know, maybe it was just the churches I grew up in, but man, I saw some guys go through where I would have to ask this question as a pastor now, is this really about Jesus, or is this about you? Paul sends Timothy and says, 
Timothy's ministry objective is to please Jesus. What a helpful way to give us a good compass. The rich guy really, really wants you to do his thing, Timothy. I, I, I know the guy who owns all the, the riches of the world. <laughs> like, I'm going to please him. His name is Jesus. Well, half the church might leave if you do it wrong, Timothy. Jesus is the head of this church, and he is its shepherd. I dare not stray away from the great shepherd, or I would not be a good under-shepherd. Just the, the way in which having your mind focused on pleasing Christ sanctifies leadership is so freeing for a ministry leader, but also might be very expensive. It might be very challenging. There might be times in which Timothy has to bear the reproaches of Christ. There might be times in which, like Jesus, there aren't a lot of people around him. If you remember in John 6, Jesus preaches a really, really strong message. And what does everyone do? The Bible says all of his disciples left him, and it seems to exclude just a handful around him. And he looks at them and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter's answer is what? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and Timothy seems to be having that same commitment, although the Lord has not put him in that place, of saying, I will follow Jesus because he has the words of life, and anyone else who wants to have the life of Christ must follow after Jesus. Pursue him. He is our goal. He is the purpose, the reason for why we do what we do within the church. Okay, so let me say it again. The normal Christian serves Jesus Christ by helping others through gospel encouragement, which means we need to be gospel-centered in our thinking. We need to be humble helpers. And this last one we just looked at, we need to have Christ-centered goals. That is, our goal is to, to pursue those things that please Christ. Number four, Timothy had reliable character. Look again in this text. But you know Timothy's proven worth. That word worth there has the idea of character. Uh, you might get the idea of worth from like gold. When gold is put in the fire, it gets purified. It, it's proven to be precious and valuable and indestructible. Timothy's character, like gold, has been put into the furnace of affliction and like gold is only made more precious, more pure, and more worthy. Let me just read for you a few texts. I put these in order chronologically. 1 Thessalonians is probably written around 51 AD. 2 Timothy written probably 65. So we're looking at about a 15-year span of ministry. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. And he actually tells the Thessalonians. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. I didn't mention this in, in talking about Timothy just a little bit. The first ministry in which he is truly engaged in Acts 16 is the Philippians. Do you recall what happened when Paul went to Philippi? You might remember the story of the Philippian jailer, where Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns. Luke and Timothy are not mentioned as being in jail. I have no idea where they are, but you can only imagine Timothy as this young, like, mentee, mentee. I don't know, follower of Paul? 
right? Like, you're with Paul. You're going to go on this missionary journey like, Mom, I'm going on a missionary trip. Oh, yeah, with who? With Paul. Paul's letting you come with him? Yeah. He's like a gum. And by the way, I didn't say this either. You know the first thing Paul does? He pulls him aside and circumcises the grown man. <laughs> it's not like all glory and glamour for Tim. He, he goes on this missionary trip. The first major city they stop in to do ministry, his mentor gets beaten and thrown in jail. I don't know if Timothy is in jail with him or on the sidelines going like, huh. Like, what do you do when Paul's in jail? And you're Tim. That's Acts 16. That's how his ministry life begins. So when you see him in 1 Thessalonians sending Timothy and saying, he's going to encourage you in these afflictions, Timothy knows what that's like. But the letter's to Timothy. This I charge and entrust you, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19 says. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made known, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Sounds like Paul is concerned that Timothy not loosen his grip on the gospel. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. He's probably in his 30s at this point. But set the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have that was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching or doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of self-control. Think he's concerned that Timothy might be losing some courage? Fan into flame that gift. God has not given us the spirit of fear, Tim. 2 Timothy 3, Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. 2 Timothy 4.9. Some of Paul's last words, he says, do your best to come to me soon. Why? Because by the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, everyone else has left me. Mark is good. Please come, Tim. I want to be encouraged. I'm alone. Timothy had reliable character. That is, through the trials of ministry, through the prosecution, the persecution, the press upon him, the afflictions of suffering, the travel, the miseries of that day and age, Timothy was faithful to the gospel. He followed after Christ. You do not know you're godly without the pressure of life testing it. Everyone is godly in the imagination of their own thinking. Real life exposes us for pretenders or for people of proven character. 
You do not know how resilient your faith is until your faith is tested. Having played sports for years in high school and college, every year, I remember at the beginning of the year, starting with hope. There were a lot of years that ended with not much hope and not many victories. Some of you could probably share in that. Before you're tested on the game field or on the court or in your home, in the quietness of a conversation with your spouse, in the repetitive sin that happens in the workplace or from your children towards you or from you towards your children, you do not know how godliness lives in you. You do not know whether you are godly until pressure comes. Finally, if the normal Christian serves Jesus Christ by helping others through gospel encouragement, this did not happen without some training. Timothy was trained to serve. Look again in this text. Verse 22, you know Timothy's proven character. How as a son, that Greek word is literally child, how as a child with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Now Paul's point is not one of affection. His point is not Timothy and I are like father and son, although that is true if you read other texts. His point is something like this. Like a father teaches his child in his craft and, and raises his child to be like him, I have done this with Timothy according to the gospel. He has been my co-laborer, and I've instructed him to be an echo of my ministry philosophy and heart and message. Jesus was very likely a carpenter or a construction worker because Joseph was. And just like throughout the years, all the way up until fairly recent history, if your dad worked in the shop from an early age, you worked in the shop with him, and whatever trade he was doing in the shop, that's what you would be. This is why we have names like Baker and Smith, because it's like a family trade. This is why pianos are called Steinway and Sons, because that's what they do. They make pianos. And their sons made pianos. And their sons' sons made pianos. What did Paul do? Gospel work. And so he takes Timothy like a father and says, let me show you how to do this. No, son, not like that. Like this. No, no, Tim. <laughs> you will just take all the hope out of the room if you preach like that. You need to give them some encouragement and grace. Timothy, I know I preach long. Don't do that. Those types of sermons, those types of little discipleship moments. And so now Paul is saying, I can't go. I am in jail. And I'm sending my protege in the gospel. And he knows how to do this well. Listen to him. Let me show you from the text, too, something you might have missed because we've been focusing on kind of this resume of Timothy. I want you to see the heart that Paul has probably been training Timothy to have. Look in verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be what? Cheered. By what? News of you. The apostle is sitting probably in a Roman jail, at least under house arrest. 
And this church that he spent time with, that he ministered to, it started so small that, that they met by the river. They didn't even have a location. They weren't meeting in the synagogue because there's so few of them, and they were mostly women. The first convert there, Lydia, this little church that he cares about deeply, the church that he suffered to share the gospel with, he is sitting hundreds of miles away, incarcerated, and his pastoral heart is bleeding for the care and, and the spiritual affliction on this church, and he wants to know how they're doing. And he's saying, I want to be encouraged by hearing how you're standing strong in Christ despite the afflictions. Does anyone think that Paul wasn't praying faithfully for them? That his pastoral heart wasn't just rich in affection for the sweet people of this church that he had not seen in years. Look at the end of the text. Verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him, that's Timothy, just as soon as I see help will go with me. His goal here is that Timothy would carry news of what's going on with Paul's life. So maybe he'll get news from the, from the system that he'll be released in a year. As soon as he knows that, he's going to send Timothy to go tell the Philippians so that they can pray and praise and respond to his circumstances with the information that he has to give them. And verse 24 I trust in the Lord shortly that I myself will come also. It's not good enough that I'm going to send Timothy to update you and that I can hear about what's going on in your world. I want to see you. I long to get there, to be present with you all. It's not merely that. Look again in verse 19. I hope, where's his hope? In the Lord. Now he's just talking about regular circumstances. He's like, Hey, Timothy's here. He's a free agent. I'm going to send them to you. But he doesn't say it like that. He says, I am hoping in the Lord that I can send this messenger to you. Look at how he ends. Verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to come too. Even as he's talking through regular plans, he's not just simply slapping on, oh, the Lord wills. Like, that's not what this is. This is a submission and confidence that God is going to use his agents and that he will be able to participate in the Lord's work as the Lord gives that ability and freedom to be. In other words, Timothy is being discipled how to lean on the Lord and to love God's people. In just little lines like that, Paul is showing how much affection and care he has for the people of Christ. And where his true hope rests, it's not in a good lawyer who's going to get him out of jail. It's not just hope. Well, everything has worked out pretty good so far, so I know I'll get to see you soon. It's like, I, I'm trusting that the Lord will take Timothy and safely deliver him to you. And I'm eager, if the Lord will allow it, to get me there too. Just this confidence that this is the Lord's work and he needs the Lord to carry it. So as we consider how then the normal church member should live, we have a gospel-centered mindset. We think about life with this framework of calling people to live before their creator, to pursue grace by walking in fellowship with their God, to deal with guilt and sin through the forgiveness that Christ offers by paying the price for our sins, by responding to God's help and grace 
with faith and walking in light of that hope. This desire to truly care for the needs of others. And if if we're thinking through this, the true care of others is a gospel care. That's that's the point, isn't it? I mean, Timothy is not going to simply sit with people like some Freudian psychologist who's going to like lay them on a couch and they're going to pour out their sorrows and he's going to hear them. Timothy is going to give them gospel truth to, to anchor their hope. so that his Christ-centered goals are actually being pursued. Timothy has proven that even under pressure, his character is reliable. And he's been trained to serve by the apostles' example and mentorship. So I think here's what the Lord expects of all of us. This is normal Christianity. Gospel-centered thinking, humble to care for others with gospel help, my goal is that Christ be honored in all of life, right? That's our Christian goal. That my character, when tested, proves my faith in Christ and stability in response. Right? That's proven character. And that I would learn from the scriptures, from the example of Christ, and Paul, and Timothy, and Epaphroditus, how to serve. How to be trained by the very men of God in the word of God on what it means to be a Christian for Christ's sake. This is normal Christian membership in a church. Get rid of the curve. So let me take you, at least in your minds, back to verse 12. For God is at work both to will and to do. I look at that list, and I'm like, Phew, man, that's a lot. I don't think I can do it. And Jesus is like, I know. That's why you need my grace. That's why you need my help. That's why I walk with you in this. This is why I strengthen you. Listen, if this is normalcy for the Christian, then the normal Christian life is spirit-empowered and filled with the grace of Christ. If you can do your Christian walk without Jesus, you're going to get an F. If you must have the help of Jesus Christ, that's normal. If your call in life is so hard you couldn't possibly do it without God's help, that's normal. If you don't know how to speak to people, and so you ask God for wisdom that you might speak the words to encourage and pull that person to Christ, that's normal. If you have to ask for help just to pay attention to God's word as it's being preached, that's normal. If life hits you with stuff and you get discouraged, but you need God's help so that your character doesn't flake when the going gets hard, that's normal. No one does this without God's help, but God helps. I'm the one at work in you, both to will and to do those things that please me, our Savior says. Are you at work? Is God pleased? Is your Christian life normal? Spirit-dependent, filled with the richness of what it means to be part of the people of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for men who lay for us an example 
so that we do not give excuses to ourselves that Jesus, who is so far above us and whose character is so much more excellent than ours, is an unattainable example. But through sinful men like Timothy and Paul, we realize that the pattern of godliness is in fact a pattern that should be repeated again and again and again within the generations of any church. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up Timothys within this body. That you'd raise up men and women who live by the pattern of godliness, of faithfulness. That the fiber of their conversations is filled with gospel truth. That their commitment to gather with God's people is so that God's people are encouraged. Lord, guard us from defining and attending and participating in church for our own interests. Rather, help us to do so for the pleasure and the joy of Christ our Savior. Father, I ask that you would help us to have a character that no matter what trials come is proven to be true and faith-filled. Lord, help us to learn from those examples within our own lives as well as those in Scripture that we might please you in all things. Father, I thank you so much for the new members you've added to our church today. And I ask that you'd help our church be to them like Timothy was to the Philippians and they to us. Father, I pray that you'd raise up men, particularly within this church, that we can send out missionaries and church planters. Sanctify the women of this church that they would be partners and helpers in ministry, strengthening the men around them and pushing them to follow after Christ. Lord, raise up families within this church that train their children that this is the expectation of God. This is normal Christianity. To give ourselves body and soul to our Lord. To devote ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. This is normal. This is what we do because we are Christ. We are bought we are redeemed. We are owned by our Savior. So our goals, our motives, our desires, our monies, our time, they are preciously owned by Christ and invested in his church for his glory. Lord, help us to define for our children that this is the stewardship entrusted to us by men like Timothy. And so we might be pleasing to you, honoring you with our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.